I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Nine Cents, a satanic perspective of our modern world. I'm your host, Adam Campbell. I do actually have a really great show for you this week. In The Devil's Advocate, we're going to be talking about the Church of Satan's policy on politics. In The Infernal Informant, I'm going to be talking a little bit about Osama bin Laden and um, Obama and everything that's happened in the last week, uh, really, uh, focusing primarily on the uh, problems or the conspiracies uh, that have cropped up. Or, you know what, who's actually should be given props for assassinating Osama bin Laden and why it was handled as it was. I also have a little article about Einstein um, and how 50 years later, two of his um, theories of relativity have been proven accurate. I don't know why anyone would think differently. It is fucking Einstein after all, but you know what, um, I'm going to be talking about that. In Creature Feature, I have a very special interview. A good friend of mine, Travis Sewer, or Zuer, or he'll tell me how to pronounce it correctly <laughs> in the interview. Uh, at the beginning and end of the interview, I'm going to show trailers of uh, videos of his. This is an exclusive to the live show, which obviously at this point isn't fucking worth it because <laughs> I'm having so many fucking problems. Um, but you know what? It's okay. The iPod version of this, like the MP3 that I'll be releasing after this, um, it's not going to have anything with those trailers in. So if you're going to watch this mess of a live version and you're going to sit through it, well, you're going to be rewarded a little bit, assuming you can see this at all. <laughs> and it's not like cut off by some crazy crappy ad or something. You know what? First, I'm going to talk about this week and what today is specifically. Today is Mother's Day. And uh, like every holiday deserves at least the, the minutest of mention. And in this case, Mother's Day is uh, very important because, hey, like all of you, I have a mother and I would like to talk about her and I'd also like to talk about my wife a little bit. But before I do that, the Paw Print Inkathon went off uh, to great success and I'm going to be having Storm on the show to sort of talk about the event itself, um, what it took to put the event on and uh, what he learned from it and, and what he hopes to do in the future maybe. I know my wife and I went out there, and we there was a line, and we were almost 45 minutes early, and there was already a line on the door, so, you know, it, it was an astounding success. You know, we got in there, we got our ink, uh, met some really nice people, and, uh, you know, it, it all went really well, actually. So I want to talk about my mom a little bit. I, I don't know if I'm going to be uh, getting a little viclamped, get a little emotional, but if I do, bear with me. It's one of the enduring parts of my personality, <laughs> is my openness to embarrass myself. So enjoy it, if you can sit through it. <laughs> Alright, so my mom. My mom was, uh, you know, she's a very special person. And I don't say that in a derogatory way. Uh, you know, she was put into, or put herself into a, a pretty difficult situation growing up with, with three children, uh, an abusive husband. Um, and then a divorce, and then a remarry, taking on two new children. So, 
you know, she had a lot to deal with um, as a young woman at the time. And despite those difficulties that she faced, uh, I think she did a pretty fucking good job. I know, you know, I would like to think with me she did a pretty fucking good job. Um, you know, I'm a college graduate. Uh, I'm, I'm actively, uh, I have a career. I have a fantastic family. I've got a, my head on straight and, you know, I'm a Satanist, so... That was probably the best thing she could have done <laughs> was uh, you know allow me the opportunity to um, explore uh, myself without too much huss and fuss. Though there was quite a bit of that growing up, um, as I had mentioned in uh, I believe it was my first uh, episode. So let me talk about my mom a little bit. Uh, she she had she married young. She had children young, um, and, and as I already mentioned, she was trying to make the best of uh, a bad hand of cards that she had drawn. And I don't make any excuses about this. I, I think people do make their own fortune in life and, and the outcome of their lives are primarily dependent on what they put into it. I think she did pretty fucking good um, as far as her uh, motherhood goes. You know, I, from my mom, I learned I learned rage, and I learned passion. Um, she is a, a very good artist, actually, a much more talented, fine artist than I can ever hope to be. Uh, and it was her working in uh, newspaper and uh, teaching graphic design in, in high schools that made me want to be a graphic designer. You know, I, I, I looked up to her, and I have a distinctive memory of one day... Um, during the holidays, my class wanted pictures of Santa Claus or something to be brought in. And I asked my mom to draw a picture of Santa for me. And, you know, this is, you know, it's just one of those things where you're, you're a parent and you want to draw something for your kid. It takes, you know, just a couple minutes. It's not a big deal. She sat down there and she drew it for me. And I just got these butterflies fluttering through me. You know, the fact that this was on one level, just a stupid doodle that my mom was doing for me. But on the other hand, it you know, she was doing it for me, and uh, I loved watching her work. I loved watching her draw, and, and it was that, that passion that would carry through for me following that, that, that career lifestyle choice of, of being an artist and a designer. Um, and I mentioned already that she had taught us um, Emotional excess, I think, would be the best way to say it. You know, my mom is probably one of the most talented, unknowing, natural, um, lesser magic practitioners <laughs> out there. Though she would never admit it or understand it, even if, if it was ever brought up to her. She has a way of controlling people and manipulating them uh, through her behavior and how she interacts with them. And it's not always in a good way at all, and it's not always for the better good of her, because she does it unknowingly. It's sort of this inherent natural thing she does. But it's one of the qualities that I recognized and I used to uh, help, you know, as a younger man, certainly define myself and, and, and mimic what she was capable of doing uh, naturally. I would like to think that I have sort of progressed a lot further and, and refined those emotional excess uh, abilities that she had shown me. 
but um yeah she's she's where I got it from and and I, I can't really thank her enough for that it's you know it's it's a really big part of who I am now you know I'm, I'm an emotional creature as an artist and as a human being and as a Satanist and I believe that she set me on that path early you know when I was young she she was scheduled or I mean before I was even born she was scheduled to have her tubes tied and so when she found out that she was pregnant she would refer to me throughout all of my early life as a miracle child because you know she, they weren't expecting me and and my my real father really did want a a son and they had two girls before but they didn't I, I you know I'm not sure of the rationale why they wanted to get their tubes tied it might have been financial or just uh, you know social they didn't want to have another kid or uh, or it wouldn't solve any of the drastic problems that they really did have as a couple. But either way, I'm glad they did. <laughs> or else I wouldn't be here today. So thank you, Mom. I really appreciate <laughs> you having me. It is a little bit weird to be referred to as a miracle child, but I, again, along with the emotional um, lesser magic that you taught me, I think that's part of what helped define me and embrace me as my own God. You know, how... Uh, put me on the path of Satanism. I was born into it. I, you know, there's just no other option for me, uh, mentally or emotionally. So, thank you for that as well. And then my wife. I think my wife is a fantastic mother. I think she would beg to differ. Uh, and, and that goes, you know, sort of to how all women, or all people in general, are a little bit, um, you know, shy and unsure of themselves. Especially when you're a parent, because there's this constant level of panic that is sort of underlying every action and every choice you make and, and every moment as you're watching, excuse me, your children. But my wife is, uh, well, she's a very strong woman, um, and I think my, my children are, are very lucky to have someone like her. So, um, you know what, baby, you're doing a great job as a mother, and you keep it up. Um, I, and I know that you don't think that, and I know it can be really difficult and challenging at times. But if I didn't have you as as my anchor, uh, as a as you know me being your husband, I think I might go off a little bit more on those emotional excesses. You know, you're you're sort of my anchor to keep me in check, um, and uh, we sort of play off each other that way too. I, you know, sometimes I have to step in and. You know, that's that's it's part of, of what you know being a good parent and a good uh, partner is all about I would like to think so um, I love you happy Mother's Day um, how about we get on with the show let's go ahead and move over into uh, the devil's advocate it looks like all of the problems I was experiencing have subsided with Ustream so again I apologize about all that crappy intro and if you're here just for um, the interview with Travis, and you don't want to hear me talk about um, the two segments before I get to Creature Feature, which is the segment that he's going to be in. Uh, you might want to come back in about a half an hour because that's when I'm going to be talking about it. But I would be more than happy to have you um, sit in and, and sort of uh, hear my uh, perspective on things. Um, and like I said, it's only going to be about a half an hour. You know, what's, how does it hurt seeing how someone else sees the world? You know, it can't hurt anything. And actually, it might be enlightening. <laughs> Maybe not, though. Anyway, either way, here's the Devil's Advocate. Oh, Sunnah, Narasya, Ru Ayat, Narasya, 
Welcome to Devil's Advocate. I would like to preface this segment, as always, by saying I am a Satanist, I am a member of the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. Now that that's out of the way, let's talk about the Church of Satan, <laughs> of course, and their policy on politics. Uh, what constitutes the Church of Satan's stance on any number of political issues is a topic often broached by students working on papers, journalists of varying stripes and intelligence, and other sordid researchers, trolls, or people with some form of axe to grind. And I'm reading from the Church of Satan website at churchofsatan.com, and this is the uh, Church of Satan Policy on Politics article, uh, sort of a collaboration of the hierarchy of uh, the Church of Satan under theory and practice. Um, and, you know, I'm talking about this because I am a sort of a religious political fanatic, uh, but I don't pretend to even tell anyone else or, or, or hope to think that everyone shares my political mindset. And, and as I've said in previous episodes, the Church of Satan is sort of this really large tent, and there's a lot of different types of people that fall into it, because it's not really this herd mentality organization. Uh, so in this article specifically, there is a quote here. Uh, here's what we consider to be the briefest answer. This is from High Priest Peter H. Gilmore from his essay, A Map for the Misdirected. Quote, uh, as has been said many times before, one's politics are up to each individual member, and most of our members are political pragmatists. They support political candidates and movements whose goals reflect their own practical needs and desires. Our members span an amazing political spectrum, which includes, but is not limited to, libertarians, liberals, conservatives, republicans, democrats, reform party members, Independent Satanists, Leninists, Trotskites, uh, Maoists, Zionists, Monarchists, Fascists, Anarchists, and just about everything else you could possibly imagine. It's up to each member to apply Satanism and determine what political means will reach his or her ends, and they are each solely responsible for their decision. Freedom and responsibility. It must be a novel concept for those who aren't Satanists. We take it in stride. Members who demand conformity from other members to their part, I'm sorry, to their political fetish are welcomed to depart. You know, Satanism is all about uh, oneself. It, it's, it's really a selfish religion. Um, it's about you defining your reality through your actions, defining your world around you, being your own God, and to expect other people, and not only in this organization or in any group, to fall under, you know, step with you, uh, it's a little unrealistic. Uh, and it goes against that, that principle that we hold so dear, and that's individual freedom. Um, let's see, to elaborate for those who have some political ideal, which they wish the Church of Satan to tout for them, the Church does not have an official political position. Note that individual members frequently do 
have political positions. The article goes on to talk about how um, a lot of uh, naive idealists seem to think that the Church of Satan as an organization risks irrelevancy if it doesn't uh, connect itself to some sort of political movement. Um, but that's a little bit naive in, in its assumption uh, because the reason why we are able to withstand the test of time and the test of uh, religion is that uh, connection to the individual and uh, the ability to be very fluid depending on the individual uh, as a philosophy. And that's what's going to keep us going throughout the years. You know, Satanism is a deep structure of political realizable ideals. And most of us find the mantra that political action is required to justify your existence is just nonsense. The entire point of Satanism is that the Satanist does not have to change or improve reality, or make the world better, or attract attention from others by struggling to correct what one or others perceive to be the world's wrongs. The fundamental point of Satanism is that the Satanist can control his own world without having to change everyone else's first. This is essentially what choosing yourself as your own god is all about. Now, I'm not going to go on about this article um, anymore, and I'm certainly not going to quote uh, it. I think, you know, everyone should get out there and read it themselves, but, you know, it's that idea that because we're part of an organization, somehow we all must think alike, or we all must look alike, or... We all must act alike, and that's just simply not true. And and for a lot of faiths and for a lot of religions, it is actually you know the only way that they can be because there's so many rules and regulations uh, shoved onto them. But that's the strength of Satanism, is that we are the individual, and that's the political point of view for the Church of Satan. It's up to the individual. Um, and really, that's all I had to talk about for this. Um, let's go ahead and uh, move on into uh, the Infernal Informant. I've got a lot of things to say about this, and I'm going to try to keep it tight, uh, because we do have a lot of ground to cover uh, after the Ustream mishap suffered at the top of the show. So if you will bear with me, we will go into the Infernal Informant. Bodies of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all in the infernal informant. <laughs> all in the infernal informant. Let me adjust my volume slightly. Alright, so <clears throat> this past week, Osama bin Laden was shot in the face. How fucking fantastic. Only took what ten years, maybe more, depending on when you think his threat really generated. Uh, but certainly uh, from 9/11, where nearly 3,000 Americans were killed, um, not quite, but close. It's just I'm sorry, I'm getting this like delay from the other room as my wife is watching this as well. I'm gonna try to adjust here for that. Uh, it's just fantastic. And, you know, a lot of people are asking, why did it take so long? And because it took so long, they're saying, well, who should we really be thanking for this? And, you know, a lot of the uh, pragmatists out there are saying, well, we should be thanking the soldiers for they're the ones that did it, or we should be thanking the generals because they made the plan, or we should be thanking the previous administration because they set forth the path. 
or we should be thanking this administration, excuse me, because they put out the order, it is really no question to me. Um, George Bush suffered the worst terrorist attack in history under his watch. I know he likes to tout that they kept us safe, but that's bullshit because 9-11 was under his watch and that certainly was not safe. The biggest disaster was under his watch and we went from seeking revenge as we should to being directed to Iraq. And no one questions the absurdity of that, and no one questions the uh, fallacy of that logic, uh, and no one questions that he did it for his own political and personal interests. Uh, but why the fuck didn't we get Osama bin Laden under him? I mean, he had eight years, right? He had eight fucking years to catch this guy who fucking did attack us, who did mastermind that plan, who admitted to it and constantly taunted people through... Uh, video releases and radio releases, and yet nothing. If we were to thank him for it, why the fuck didn't he get the job fucking done? And it's funny how Republicans tend to attach themselves to victories or to perceived political advantages after the fact. I mean, it's natural to do so. But in this case, it's absolutely a lie. You see, President Bush, during his administration, openly admitted on tape that he didn't want to hunt down Osama bin Laden anymore. He didn't want to waste his time on it. Because he didn't see Osama bin Laden as that big of a threat anymore. Who cares that he made this big speech about finding him and wanting him dead or alive and putting out this bounty uh, award for his head? You know, who cares about all this tough talk about America being, you know, the great and how we will get revenge and we will never forget. Motherfucker forgot. Motherfucker was derelict in so many aspects of his administration. I mean, it's obvious he'll be known forever as the worst president in the history of America. And, you know, that's just a fucking fact. Uh, to now have members of his previous administration try to attach themselves as victors is just crazy. Especially after he admitted that he wasn't searching for him. More than that, they had an opportunity. And uh, according to this document, Tora Bora revisited how we failed to get bin Laden and why it matters today, a report to members of the Committee on Foreign Relations, United States Senate, John F. Carey, Chairman, 111th Congress, First Session, November 30, 2009. And it goes to stay. Page 8 here. The decision not to deploy American forces to go after bin Laden or block his escape was made by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and his top commander, General Tommy Franks. The architects of the unconventional Afghan battle plan known as Operation Enduring Freedom, Rumsfeld said at the time that he was concerned that too many U.S. troops in Afghanistan would create an anti-American backlash and fuel a widespread insurgency. 
reversing the recent American military orthodoxy known as the Powell Doctrine, the Afghan model emphasized minimizing the U.S. presence by relying on small, highly mobile teams of special operation troops and CIA paramilitary operatives working with the Afghan opposition. Even when his own commanders and senior intelligence officials in Afghanistan and Washington argued for dispatching more U.S. troops, Franks refused to deviate from the plan. There were enough U.S. troops in or near Afghanistan to execute the classic sweep-and-block maneuver required to attack bin Laden and try to prevent his escape. It would have been a dangerous fight across treacherous terrain, and the injection of more U.S. troops and the resulting casualties would have contradicted the risk-averse light footprint model formulated by Rumsfeld and Franks. But commanders on the scene and elsewhere in Afghanistan argued that the risks were worth the reward. So we had bin Laden. We knew where he fucking was. And Rumsfeld and Franks didn't want to fucking do it. And it could have been ego. They didn't want to admit that their plan uh, may not be the best plan. Or it could have been that that success would have diverted too much attention from uh, the Iraq War, which they were still trying to politically convince America was a good idea. That was a worthy cause. There's a lot of different uh, possibilities here on, on why they chose not to. But the fact that they did choose not to speaks louder than anything else. They didn't fucking care about bin Laden. They never did. So they don't fucking claim like they did now. You know, that's kind of where I'm coming from. That was in 01. And how about in uh, 06? So this is a article from the New York Times... CIA closes unit focused on capture of bin Laden by Mark Mazzetti, published July 4th, 2006. The Central Intelligence Agency has closed a unit that for a decade had a mission of hunting Osama bin Laden and his top lieutenants, intelligence officials confirmed Monday. The unit, known as Alex Station, was disbanded late last year and its analysts reassigned within the CIA, Counterterrorist Center, the official said. The decision is a milestone for the agency, which formed the unit before Osama bin Laden became a household name and bolstered its ranks after September 11th attacks. When President Bush pledged to bring Mr. bin Laden to justice dead or alive, the realignment reflects a view that al-Qaeda is no longer a hierarchical as it once was, intelligence officials said, and a growing concern about Qaeda-inspired groups that have begun carrying out attacks independent of Mr. bin Laden and his top deputy, Amar al-Zawahiri. In their defense, they said the efforts to find Osama bin Laden are as strong as ever. This is Jennifer Miller-Wise-Dyke, a CIA spokeswoman. This is an agile agency, and the decision was made to ensure greater reach and focus. Taking away such a, a hard-line focus on uh, the al-Qaeda, and certainly um, bin Laden's, I guess, franchise of it, and spreading it out. So I guess, you know, politically, it may have been a smart move, but it's a perception of doing that, that they don't care. And that perception, obviously was reinforced by years earlier them having the opportunity to take down uh, bin Laden and not doing it and the president himself saying he doesn't care and he's not looking for him uh, and yet still you know it's their fucking and I say they because I'm certainly not on his side I'm not claiming any responsibility with this because I had nothing to do with it so you know keep that in mind here 
Um, it's just, I just want to put it out there that it's just fucking retarded. And then, because there was pictures that someone photoshopped and released, and then were proven to be fucking fake, uh, conspiracy theories propped up. You know, at what point do we start to realize that everything in our lives can be faked and can be a fucking lie? At some point, you just have to say, okay, I'm going to believe this, because it makes sense. You know, the whole birther thing that I talked about in previous episode is pure evidence of that. No matter how much proof you show people, they're going to fucking believe what they want to believe. So why the fuck should anyone show anyone any picture of Bin Laden? Even if it's fucking real, they're going to say that it's faked. And if it's faked, they're going to prove that it's a conspiracy theory. There's always this... this extra step negative involved. Uh, so, you know, their, their decision to not release the photo, I think, politically, as far as uh, foreign relations goes, is in in incredibly wise. Uh, you don't want to rub a savior to some terrorist face in this picture. It's like taking a, a, a photo of, uh, you know, the president who was shot in the face and showing it to Americans. We would be reinvigorated. Uh, we would be uh, just overcome with emotion and we would double our efforts to take down that individual. So that's what they're trying to avoid, which makes perfect sense. Why? But I don't think there was ever, ever a decision, and this is me just sort of going off on my own opinion here. I, I have nothing to back any of this up. This A campaign promise that Obama made throughout his entire campaign was that he would find and end Osama Bin Laden. Now, there haven't been many campaign promises he's actually followed through with and actually accomplished. Um, this is one of them, and we can all thank him for that. That's fantastic. And it certainly was him. It was his decision not to do a big uh, uh, co-optive plan with Pakistan, who fucking knew that guy was there anyway. I mean, how could you fucking not, really? Excuse me. Also, uh burying the body at sea, or trying to capture Bin Laden alive. Really? I mean, all these people complaining that they didn't take him alive, or they're not trying him in a trial. We tried to fucking have regular terrorists. People that weren't in any of the leadership in infrastructure tried in the United States, and people shit their fucking pants over it. So why would they be okay with Bin Laden being tried in the States? That's just absurd. So that notion is, is ridiculous. And then the body... Why would they keep a fucking corpse? I mean, you know, that's like keeping the Shroud of Turin and waving in front of fanatical Christians' faces saying, ah, you'll never get this. It, it, again, it just reinvigorates the cause. This politically was the best thing they could have done, but realistically, why the fuck would they even want to have him alive? I'd be surprised if it wasn't sort of a wink-wink nudge-nudge. Yeah, you know, if you can get in there and if, uh, you know, if he gives up, you know... Take him alive, but otherwise, if he coughs, if he blinks, if he breathes, if his mustache twitches, shoot him in the face. There's no fucking intention of getting this guy alive. That, that's, that's retarded. And for them to say that, in my opinion, uh, decreases the value, though not much, because <laughs> it's still great, of this vengeance uh, America took out on him. So what's going to happen from here? Who fucking knows? Um... This will not end any terrorist threat. Obviously, no one thinks that. You know, that's just an absurd notion in and of itself as well. Uh, but this is a very important step for us to get the 
fuck out of Afghanistan, though still we're going to be there for a number of years, and uh, maybe pull out our troops finally out of Iraq, even though we've been told that there's no military presence there, and we still have troops there. So, um, whether it's a peacekeeping mission or not, there's no fucking reason to be over there, man. Just, just back the fuck off. Let the fires of democracy that are already burning in the Middle East spread on their own. We need to really focus here at home. Uh, so that's my rant on the whole issue of Obama and Osama. It was absolutely Obama's props to get fucking Osama bin Laden, and to speak otherwise is ignoring the facts. Um, let's go ahead and do my last article here before we move into uh, the creature feature. And this is sort of just a thing that I found interesting. I like space, and I thought you might as well. PC Magazine actually did this article, though it's spread across all the news outlets. Uh, May 5th, 2011. It took more than 50 years, but NASA proves that Einstein was correct. And it begins, NASA's six-year Gravity Probe B, or GPB, mission has confirmed two major predictions from Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity. The four ultra-precise gyroscopes used by GPB measured the hypothesized geodetic effect, or the warping of space and time around a gravitational body, and frame dragging, which is the amount of spinning objects the amount a spinning object pulls space and time with it as it rotates. To do this, GPB was pointed at a single star, IM Pegasi, while in orbit around Earth. NASA said that if gravity had no effect on space and time, the gyroscopes on GPB would point in the same direction indefinitely while in orbit. However, researchers uh, found that the gyroscopes experienced very small Oh, changes in spin direction as Earth's gravity pulled at them, confirming Einstein's theories. Quote, the mission results will have a long-term impact on the work of theoretical physicists, said Bill Danji, senior astrophysicist and program scientist at NASA headquarters in Washington. Every future challenge to Einstein's theories of general relativity will have, its, will have to seek more precise measurements than their remarkable work GPB accomplished. So that's it. Two of the theories proven. There's more to this article, and you're welcome to check it out if you want. But I'm kind of excited to get into this interview with Travis, so I'm going to jump into that. Uh, before I go into Creature Feature, uh, like I said before, I'm going to be running a trailer at the beginning and a different trailer for one of his other films at the end of the interview. The interview went really long, so I split it into two parts. This part is actually just under a half hour, uh, and this is me talking to him about the industry and about his experience and uh, sort of what he learned and stuff like that. The second half, which I'm going to show next week, is going to be about specific films that he's made. Uh, in order to get the full effect, you have to watch both times, and this is my shameless attempt at bringing you back for another episode. <laughs> uh, and you know what? It's great, because uh, he was a great, great guest, uh, very easy to talk to, with a true passion for what he's talking about. So let's go ahead and move on to the Infernal Informant and learn a little bit about... I'm sorry, Infernal Informant. See, my fucking drops are just killing me. I'm just, the beginning of the show started all fucked up, and now I am just scrambling, trying to keep my head fucking just above water. Uh, okay, so let's go ahead and go into Creature Feature. The sky is dark, moon piercing the night. Through the trees, the damsel in distress comes, breaking through the underbrush. Fear 
painted on her face. The darkness hunting her is near. She moves the swamp, water slowing her escape. The creature nears, the damsel turns, hands rising to her sides as a last effort to thrust the creature back. Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to Creature Feature. Today we have a very special guest, writer, director, and friend, Travis Sewer. Travis, thank you for joining me. Hey, how's it going, buddy? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem, man. Uh, did I say your last name right? Uh, you know what? Of the million ways I've heard it said, you got pretty close. So it's actually, I think the per- correct German pronunciation is actually Zur. Oh. But... I've I I've heard sewer. I've heard sir. I it, whatever. I just go with I just go with whatever. It doesn't bother me either way. So cool. Well, I wanted to um, sort of take us back. Full disclosure, I met you first working at a, a coffee shop in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, Barnes and Noble. Yes, yeah. Incidentally, where we uh, where I ended up meeting my wife too. Yes, uh, fantastic. All started working together. So. A long time ago was what nine years ago, I think. So, fuck, that's long. Long. <laughs> God damn, man. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, wow. And uh, you two are still together. You just had a, an addition to the family. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Yes, we did. Thank you very much. Our first little uh, boy. So, it's been quite a life changing experience. It's been awesome, but it's weird that. It's so weird to have somebody that like you and you knew her before me and I you, we met and then now we're me and her are still together but you I mean you you were friends with us way back then when it first started so it's kind of cool that we still all know each other. Yeah, it's I think it's fantastic. It's I I still haven't ever seen like live video or anything of your kids so someday we're going to have to uh... Remedy that. I, I'm convinced that one day I'm going to drive my family down to Phoenix uh, for some reason or another, and uh, hopefully we can stop in and maybe have lunch or dinner or something sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Anytime. Now, I wanted to have you on the show to feature not only some of your work, but to talk about the industry itself and sort of your experiences with the industry so far. When did you first realize that you wanted to work in the film industry? It was kind of a roundabout way how I ended up being in the how I wanted to be in the film industry. I I really just like telling stories. I love um, just the way a story is put together and the way a story works and the way I mean how there's you know beginning, middle, and end. And I love endings that have sort of a twist to it. And uh, when I originally started telling my stories, I would. I thought you kind of had to do it in book form. I didn't really realize how many different mediums there were out there. And the problem with my writing books is my vocabulary is extremely limited because I grew up in a very shitty school system. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess you could just say point blank American school system and and everyone will understand. It was, it was, I, I would find that my writing was almost unreadable. It was just bad. I mean, I, I had the right ideas for stories. I just couldn't figure out how to get them onto paper or how to get them into other people's minds, really. And then, uh, incidentally, my college roommate that I met when I was going to the University of Wyoming told me, he goes, you know, you love watching movies and you love writing. Why don't you write movies? And it was just one of those moments that it's almost like I felt like I got punched in the stomach. I just knew that was exactly what I wanted to do. I was like, that's just 
brilliant. And uh, I spent my first spring break in college while everybody else went away writing my first screenplay. And uh, it's god-awful, and nobody <laughs> will ever read it. It's so... It's terrible. It's like the worst, uh, you know, two buddies fall in love with a girl or their roommates. I mean, it's terrible, 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 <laughs> terrible. But uh, it kind of just, it was, it was a really good kind of crash course on how screenplay structure works and how telling a story that way works, which uh, amazingly, you can tell a very good story with almost no vocabulary <laughs> in the film because all you're doing is writing one line at a time. So... It really, it's really where I feel most comfortable writing. And uh, anyway, fast forward, uh, I was I was moving down to Phoenix after I went to uh, school in Wyoming, and uh, I was moving down to Phoenix to actually only live here for like six months to uh, jump to California. Oops. And yeah, met the girl. <laughs> so that helped me. Uh, that that kept me in Phoenix, but it also it was actually a good good thing because I really learned in a roundout way that I don't really like the California scene really as far as filmmaking goes. It just seems, I don't know, I, I personally just like telling stories. I don't want all the crap that goes with it. Right. I just want to tell right. a story. So uh, I ended up going to a school up in North, North Arizona uh, in Sedona and uh, they it's a really hands-on school. They do... Um, I mean, within the first three days, I think we already had our hands on cameras and lights, and I mean, it was intense. The first That's three fantastic. or four months, yeah, the first three four months, you're doing a film a week. Wow! And wow. I mean, it was just it was brutal. It was intense. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's seven days a week school. I mean, they, they they designed the school really to teach you what the film industry is like versus you know they don't they don't care about theory and all that crit- critiquing and all that stuff. You, you're going to know that stuff on your own. So. Um, I went to that school and now ever since then I've just been kind of trying to find my way which way I want to make movies my way and you know what projects I want to be a part of and stuff like that so what was the name of the school uh, the Zachy Gordon Institute uh, it's in Sedona Arizona it's actually a very good school for anybody who's looking to actually go to school for filmmaking but doesn't want to be in a four-year program where you're taking you know three years of theory and you know, screenplay structure and all that really incredibly boring crap. Yeah. So it's it's a really hands-on school, really cool school. But all the guys that run it are they're they're people that have been in the industry. Um, I think the guy that the guy that runs the school, he if you remember the movie Tremors, yeah, the the worms that pop out of the ground. Yeah. He, he was the, the the effects guy that was responsible for that. Oh, nice. Out. So he worked with. Uh, he worked with James Cameron on The Abyss. Um, the guy that wrote it, or the guy that started the school, he wrote um, Tombstone. Yeah. And wrote, uh, he's written, uh, I mean, he's written a couple of crap movies too, like Three Ninjas, but. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that actually takes away a couple of good movies <laughs> as I mean, far as credentials. <laughs> I know that's uh that was always the the joke of the school whenever cuz he has to he has to approve your movies and stuff like that before you make anything and uh he would sometimes send students back notes that he would just kind of rip them and it's in the, it's a good thing because he's actually giving constructive criticism in a very harsh way yeah. and yeah. I mean it's very helpful for people that are trying to get into the industry but there were times where it was just like yeah but he wrote three ninjas so <laughs> <laughs> 
my <laughs> screenplay may suck, but it yeah. wasn't three ninjas bad. Exactly, <laughs> exactly the point. So, I mean, there was always kind of that comforting little uh, security blanket you had on the side. Well, at least I didn't write three ninjas. Mm. What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. All right, so um, let, let, let's move aside a little bit. What films have inspired you? Um, and to add on to that, what films inspire your current work that you're working on? Oh, wow. Um, I have a really weird, wide variety of what I like. I like, I like so many different kind of movies. Um, I'd have to say I really like anything Fincher's done. Um, he did uh, Fight Club, Seven, uh, The Game, uh, most recently Social Network. I did, recently he's getting a little more commercial, and but he, I I really like the way he he presents characters in a way that I don't think very many people do, and very many directors do. So I really like any of his stuff. Um, I really like Aronofsky, what he's done. Um, he's uh, most recently Black Swan. But, oh um, yeah, dude, that was badass. Back day, yeah, back in the day he did uh, um, Pi. Uh, Requiem for a Dream. Hell yes. So, yeah, he's a very good director too. I really, I really dig his stuff. And as much as I, it's probably not cool to say because he's very commercial. I really dig Chris Nolan. Oh uh, yeah. Stuff. And oh man, he's just the stuff he. I, I think he's our closest thing to a modern day Hitchcock, where he still has a way of twisting an ending to uh, to. Uh, completely sort of pulled a rug out from underneath the audiences. So I really love what he's done. Um, but I would say as far as what inspires me recently, um, I could tell you with Lullaby, I really was floating on the fountain with Aronofsky mm-hmm. and just the, the idea of the whole human connection and what makes, what makes everything we around us real, what, I mean, how we perceive reality and everything like that. Um, so it was a lot of the fountain. Um, I took a lot of, I could tell you as far as technically, I took a lot of shots out of different movies. Like I, uh, the whole overhead shot in Lullaby where they're laying in bed, that yeah. is taken out of a very terrible movie, The Island with Michael Bay. <laughs> I mean, it's a terrible movie, but that shot is just ripped directly from that movie. And then uh, there were a couple shots from the fountain that I took that I really liked. Um, so... Uh, it's 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 I always it, it's a couple different ways of how I get inspired when I do uh, the stuff I'm working on now. It's a combination of what I like physically, like what I see in the movie, the shots I like. Um, as far as telling story, like story wise, I don't really take a whole lot. I mean, I'm sure I do subconsciously. <laughs> right. Well, who doesn't? I mean. Right. I feel like it's. I don't really take a lot from other people because I have way too much going on up here anyway. So nice. it just kind of comes out. I don't. I'm not. I don't really look around for the inspiration. It kind of just comes as far as writing goes. But when it comes to directing, uh, it's definitely looking around and finding you know shots that I love, uh, themes that I really love, and I try to bring those out in my movies. Let me ask you: Do you consider yourself more of a writer or a director? I think I'm a it's 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 really tough to answer that because it's almost like I'm I'm going to steal a line from Kevin Smith uh in, in one of his little stand-up things that he did I direct just to protect my own shit <laughs> like, I just it's nice. it's 
I almost like directing just so I can make sure that my writing gets across what I wanted it to get across. Um, I've written stuff in the past and had other people do it, and it's a completely different experience. A lot of the times, everything you've written just doesn't end up. I mean, the, the, the bones of it are there, but the soul's missing. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. just, you, you, get, you get the sense of, yeah, he made my movie, but he didn't make what my movie was about. So when there's, pat, when there's stuff that I write that I'm really passionate about, when there's uh, little pieces I write that I'm really passionate about, there's no question that I, I want to direct it. But when there's stuff that I write that I feel, hey, you know, somebody else might be better at directing it or this isn't really my directing style, I'll, I have no problem handing it off and letting somebody else do it as long as I'm not emotionally attached to it. And, and I learned kind of the hard way that if I do write, I don't want to be anywhere near the set when they're making it if I'm not directing it because I just tend to just be like, that's not what I said. That's not the line. That's not what I meant to say. You're like sitting behind the director pulling yeah. a Christian Bale. Are you trying to yeah. fuck me up? <laughs> we, did a, we did a movie that it's still not done because it's in the, the editing process, but I wrote this little short called Copy, and it was really, really ambitious. It's about a guy who accidentally clones himself and then has to like fight off his own clone in his office before his boss comes in and fires him it's like a <laughs> thing it's really funny and everything but i just felt like it wasn't really my directing style yeah. it's more kind of slapstick and stuff like that so i i handed it over to a friend but then at the same time i decided hey i, I could produce it and i could get my name on it again that way and it was a it was a good experience, and it was a it was a real fun experience, and I think it's going to turn out to be a really great movie. But the entire time we were on the set, I was just like, "Oh man, if I was directing it, I would be doing this. If I was directing it, I'd be doing that." And it was just kind of it just, yeah. just to almost like my own nightmare, where I'm sitting there watching somebody else do my movie, yep. and it was like, "Oh, this isn't what I wanted." But I mean, it'll it'll I think it'll eventually be a better movie the way we did it. It was just really hard to sit there on the set and do it that way. So. Right, well, plan on doing again. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me jump back to something that you said earlier um, that I think may have some bearing um, for a lot of people listening here. You, you were talking about how uh, you were using the word commercial, and, and you were kind of using it disparagingly, like like it's a bad thing. And I know how a lot of people nowadays sort of see that as a negative thing. And I'm I'm hoping maybe you can um, enlighten us on why you used it in a negative way and what you think about being uh, commercial is, is a bad thing. Let me start by saying that there, there isn't, I don't know, I don't think there's really anything wrong with being commercial if that's what you want to be. And to me, when I say um, something's commercial, I say, I, I guess my meaning, my definition of it, is something that's been artistically compromised. It's something that it wasn't meant to be this way, but it makes more money this way, so we'll do it that way. Do you know what I mean? Does that make any sense? It just—it seems to me that I know I know the whole process of how a movie gets made, and a lot of the commercial movies. I guarantee you, the guy that was sitting in the dark room writing it when he originally came up with the idea, did not want to see that piece of crap come out. <laughs> I just guarantee you that the lonely writer sitting away somewhere did not see uh, 
fucking Tom Cruise acting in his movie, uh, a real actor acting in it. So I just think that as far as commercialism goes, if you want to be, if you want to be a commercial filmmaker or a commercial artist or a commercial um, musician, whatever you want to do, if you, if it's commercial and that's what you want to do, great. That's awesome. Do that. I personally would rather, I would rather be a homeless bum that makes movies that matter than sell, I don't know, sell a piece of crap just to put a roof over my head, basically. And that's why, I don't know, to me, that's why I talk down about commercialism. I think there's too many people that really compromise what they think is a good film and what is a good piece of art, and they do it just because they want more people to like them. And I think it's more important to me to do what's in your heart, do what you feel is what you're passionate about versus doing what's going to, at the end of the day, make you more money. So that to me is what I'm, when I, when I talk about commercialism, when I talk down about it, that's where I, that's what I mean. But I mean, like I said before, if that's what floats your boat, go do that. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. I think, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you'd agree. I think most people go into any industry um, with that in mind. Um, they really want to, they don't ever want to compromise their artistic vision for mm-hmm. whatever they're working on. Um, and sometimes I think in some industries, certainly I would include the film industry on this one, it's almost like you have to for a little while in order to have carte blanche. So in order to be in a position where you're, uh, 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 Christopher Nolan, for example, right. who I I just assume can do whatever the fuck he wants because <laughs> yeah. of, of everything he's done so far, um, yeah. that you have to sort of play the game for a while, right? That's true. Well, and, and especially in Chris Nolan's case, you could uh, argue that Insomnia was a sellout sort of movie. Insomnia wasn't really his style. He didn't write it. He didn't really have much to do with it. He was hired you know, by, uh, I can't remember who the big names were that produced that. I want to say it was like Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney produced it and brought it on. So I think that, I mean, yeah, you could make that argument. He, uh, he could have, you know, done that sellout movie to get to the Memento or to get, or Memento was before that. So he did that one to get to the, the Batmans, I guess you could say. But, and yeah, in the film industry, there is definitely that. You have to, and especially in the film industry, you're looking for people to give you money. So at some point, the people giving you money are going to say, look, you're not, we're not getting any money back. We're not going to keep giving you money. So I, yeah, I would agree with that in a certain sense. I still feel like in my per- personal point of view, it's, it's better to not do it. Yeah. And I think that could be, that could eventually be where my downfall is and why <laughs> so long to do you know, my own projects, but I just would rather do it what I, the, the way I feel is right versus doing it, you know, what, some guy who has no interest in what my film is actually about, but wants to make a dollar off of it, what he cares about my film. So I, I guess there is a fine balance you do have to find, and it's a very tough thing. I'm still trying to figure it out, obviously, but um, in the end, I would rather make movies that are have something to it, have some sort of artistic value, something I would feel, something I feel good putting my name on. Absolutely. 
And you know what? I, I, I don't think anyone would disparage that. I, I think that's uh, quite admirable. Let me start to talk uh, a little bit of a theory here. I don't, I don't want to you know, drag you through this much longer here, but I, I do have a couple more questions here. Sure. When you were working on Lullaby, what do you think was um, the most important lesson at that time that you learned? The most important lesson I learned on Lullaby? About making uh, I think the most important lesson I learned on Lullaby is wearing the different hats as far as making a movie. Um, being a writer, director, and producer on that, it was really different to see it from all three perspectives because the way that script was written, I mean, seeing how it changed through seven drafts before it went, before it finally got shot, and then having to basically just stop as a writer and say, okay, I'm done writing, I'm letting the directing brain take over and the producing brain. It was just kind of weird to see how each part is different. I mean, you'd think they're so much similar, but really they are completely different. And that is a producer and a director I really struggled in the end in the editing process where I had to cut it down and I had to cut things out. I mean there's a whole there's a whole storyline with the trunk that's in the bedroom yeah. that is completely left out of the end product because I had to cut I had to cut it under twenty minutes and I had to cut it if I left the trunk in it would it didn't make as much sense uh, for an audience. So I mean it was just the thing I learned most was definitely just how you have to put on the different hats and how you have to make choices that sometimes they're going to kill you as far as like what you what you really want to do sometimes but in the end you got to you got to do what's you know for the best of your movie and what you feel is the better movie in the end and you know the trunk didn't make a whole lot of sense to the audience <laughs> so as much as I loved it as a writer I had to, I knew I had to take it out because it, I didn't want to lose the audience yeah so and what at the you- same time I think taking the trunk didn't really compromise a whole lot. It just took out something that was kind of unnecessary anyway. So, cool. Well, what, do, what do you think uh, the most important part or parts are of taking a project from concept to completion? The most important part is I will. It's it's kind of quick and cliche, but the most important part is just fucking doing it. <laughs> <laughs> Getting the motivation. Yeah, I just can't. I can't tell you how many I have. I have a mountain of scripts of stuff that I've written that I'm sure I will never ever have time to ever let them see the light of light of day. Yeah. But if I could just, if I could, if personally, if I could just say, you know what, I'm doing this and I'm doing it, and I would just stick to that one idea, I would probably get. I would probably be way more productive. Whoa. My my Achilles heel is that I get started on this and I just start thinking, oh my god, this is a better project right over here, and so I jump onto that and then I start <laughs> oh, thinking, oh my god, I, like I this is this is going to sound completely crazy, but I've started writing a play, I've started writing a sitcom, sort oh, of. Shit. I've started writing I don't know how many full feature different ideas that ranging from a completely goofball comedy like Shaun of the Dead meets vampires. Nice. And to to a, uh, a completely like trilogy sort of style movie about a guy able to cross time. I mean, I just I jump all over the place. And that's if you can just get if you can just get an idea and just fucking stick to it. <laughs> get so much more done. And I'm sure I would if I could just if you could just do it. Just that's that's what I, if I if I could tell anybody the best advice, just 
fucking do it. Just do it. <laughs> just do, do it. it. Stealing Whatever. old Nike, but do it. Yeah, just what you're going to do. Just find what you're going to do and just do it. And don't let anything distract you. Just get to the end and then start the next project. And that's what I'm hopefully doing with these, these series of uh, artistic metaphors. I'm hoping that this will help me focus, you know, one at a time, get them all done, and then move on to the next thing. So that way I can start actually getting to the bigger feature sort of style movies. Oh, yeah. So. Um, uh, well, you know what? Where can uh, people get in touch with you um, and see some of your work? I, I know you mentioned your, your Facebook page and your uh, <clears throat> excuse me your blog. Can you uh, mm-hmm. just throw those out one more time? Sure. The, the Facebook page is uh, facebook.com slash Travis David Sewer, and it's S-U-H-R is the last name. Uh, you could check out Lullaby on the Lullaby page. It's just Lullaby Movie, and it's it's actually Lullaby with an E on the end. Some people I uh, have caused many a headaches with that, <laughs> choosing to put an E on the end of Lullaby. But uh, um, you can check out Behind Closed Doors actually on Facebook or on uh, YouTube. I'm sorry, on YouTube that one's in its entirety on there. Um, copy. I'm hoping will eventually be done and somebody will eventually see it so people will believe that it exists. Uh, it's in the editing process still, so eventually when that one gets up, it'll probably be on the blog or on my Facebook page. Um, the blog is uh, com. It's a really long name, I know, but it's <laughs> <laughs> what I named it and then got stuck with in a sense. So there's another important lesson for all you kids at home. <laughs> Choose your, choose your uh, domain names wisely. <laughs> the shorter the better. Yes. Oh, yes. man. Well, I, I got to tell you, man, if if you ever need any artwork done, I would be more than happy to donate some time for you. I, I absolutely think you're a talent, and I would love to see you uh, get handed a motion picture and, you know, all the reins and just fucking drive with it. I think that would be fantastic. And if anyone listening out there um, in the industry, you know, wants to do some work and get an actual artistic piece um, or be a part of an artistic piece, you know, give Travis a, a, a buzz. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there are one of the mounds of scripts in his office he would love to collaborate with. And, uh, you know, whether that be a musical score or um, uh, makeup work or um, special effects or, you know, whatever. Um, it's important that we uh, help the people who actually care about what they're doing, and I uh, definitely think Travis is one of them. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Travis. I really appreciate it. We actually did go uh, a bit long, so I may consider breaking this into two parts, um, but I think it's absolutely fantastic. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I know you're a busy man, um, so I, I really do appreciate the time. And, you know, I hope the best for you and your work in the future. Uh, I, I'll always be a big fan of yours, and uh, you know what? Next time you do another project, come back on the show and we'll talk about it. And, uh, you know, maybe we can uh, get a couple more viewers. Absolutely. Thanks for the thanks for all the uh, props. Thanks for all the uh, ideas you kind of planted inside my head just talking to you. So <laughs> cool. <laughs> I got to go write some more stuff right now. So. <laughs> nice. Appreciate it, my good, uh, my good man. Uh, we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bazaar of the Bazaar. <laughs> that was a really tough transition, I admit, and I apologize for that. Uh, you go from this really, well, eloquent <laughs> fucking piece of uh, 
film to uh, my shitty fucking bumper there. So sorry about that. Sure's really aggressive to hear. <laughs> but, you know, we gotta move on with the show. We're talking with the Bizarre Bizarre. This is sort of a segment that I just talk about whatever random thing, topic, subject pops in my head that sort of bothers me or I find interesting. Um, today. Today, I have the toothpaste squeezing it from the middle. Now I know a lot of people don't have any even fucking idea where they squeeze the toothpaste to because it's not really an important thing. And it shouldn't be, except for my <laughs> really OCD behavior. I cannot stand it when it's squeezed in the middle. And you have this big chunky end on one side and, and there's like nothing at the tip except for just a, a this little blob it's like, what do people expect? Like, you have to literally squeeze it, siphon it from the very back to the very front every time you use it, or else you're just not going to be able to get it out. It drives me fucking mad. So I actually <laughs> experienced this, personally, and I thought, you know what, fine, I'm not going to fix it, because I'm always the one squeezing it from the bottom up to the top. I'm not going to be the one. I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to just... Just let it ride and see how long they can fucking stand it. And it was like weeks. They didn't fucking change it at all. So I had to go back and fucking do it. Squeezing it from the fucking middle drives me mad. So for all of you out there, if there's ever a chance that I'm going to be crashing on your couch, for any reason, please, please, sweet hell, please, squeeze it from the bottom. And just show a little respect to the other people that use the fucking tube, eh? Squeeze it from the bottom. It's so aggravating. <laughs> Alright, well, you know what? That's it for another show. Thank you so much for joining me. And I understand that it went really long, but a lot of this is going to be cut out from the actual uh, MP3 that's going to be published tomorrow night. Uh, obviously, you're not going to have the trailers in there from the film. And a lot of the problems that we had at the top of the show aren't going to be there. I'm going to cut all that bullshit out, and it's just going to be straight content. So, um, like I mentioned before, next week is going to be the second half of the interview with Travis. We're going to be talking about specific films, including Lullaby, and that last little teaser you saw of Eloquent. Uh, and also, he, he had mentioned some other films that we're going to be sort of covering a little bit. And that one's going to be you know, just shy of like 25 minutes or something like that as well. Uh, so, a lot to talk about. If you want to get in contact with me, or if you want to find more about Nine Cents, check out NineCentsPodcast.com, or go to Facebook.com and check out the Nine Cents page. It's literally Nine Cents. Um, if you want to contact me, send me how much you hate this show, or how much you love this show, or if you have crazy pictures of your dogs. I'm a dog fan, so I might want to see them. Send them to info at NineCentsPodcast.com. If you want to learn anything about Satanism, churchofsatan.com is the place to be. Or go out to your local library or go to your local bookstore and pick up the fucking Satanic Bible. But don't ask stupid questions because you can inform yourself. If you want to see any other Satanists out there or hear what they have to say uh, through the intertubes, the interwebs, check out radiofreesatan.com. It's an internet streaming radio station uh, owned and operated by the Church of Satan. Uh, there are literally a veritable cornucopia of shows on there, uh, ranging from metal music to uh, big band or literature. Uh, it, it's actually, there's a wide variety of really fantastic shows. 
Uh, so go check them out, RadioFreeSatan.com. And if you want to talk to any other Satanists out there uh, in the uh, internet, check out Undercroft at SatanNet.com. It's a social networking site, uh, a lot like Facebook, except more evil. <laughs> um, and you know what, before I go, as last week, I want to pimp out my children's book, How Crow Got a Scare Pack. Uh, it's about finding self-confidence. Um, it's generated towards children and building up self-confidence within them. It's available everywhere, um, self-published through Lulu, uh, but it is distributed worldwide, so you should be able to find it. You know, they said it, it could take like up to eight weeks, and it's close to that. So you should be able to find it on Amazon or eBay or Barnes and Nobles, or, you know, stuff like that. But I've got an ebook, I've got the printed book, and I've got like a PDF if you just want to do it on the screen for your kids. Um, I did all the illustration and writing myself and uh, had a contributing editor, Jennifer Carlston. So it was uh, sort of a passion project of mine that I think uh, would be worthy of at least examining a little bit. And you can find information on that also on Facebook at uh, How Crow Got a Scareback. Just type it all in as one word. Or go to uh, my website, adampcampbell.com forward slash crow. And, uh, you know, that's it. Uh, so once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, hail Satan.